The following program may contain explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 9th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Within the span of 24 hours, the police chiefs of Rochester, New York, and Dallas, Texas, resigned yesterday. The entire upper staff in Rochester has stepped down. The circumstances in all these cases are different, but the resignations add to a growing list. Atlanta, Seattle, and Portland all had chiefs resign since the protests over the death of George Floyd began. Now, those chiefs who I listed, they comprise two black women, two white women, and a black man. All these chiefs had the confidences of Democratic liberal mayors in liberal cities, those circumstances varied among them. In Atlanta, deadly shooting by police was the breaking point. In Dallas and Seattle, treatment of protesters touched off by the death of George Floyd led to the resignations. In Portland, the chief, a white woman, specifically asked for a black man to be her replacement, telling Portland's mayor, quote, she believed that our community needed new voices to lead the conversation around community safety. These police officials, from what I could tell, should be seen more as a solution than part of the problem. Individual communities might demand firings based on individual problems. I'm not discounting that. But as a general trend, losing the kind of progressive community-minded police leadership that these cops represent, perhaps it's an inevitable thing in a time of crisis, but it's also something of an unfortunate thing. Some chiefs just have to go. Louisville's Steve Conrad oversaw a department with problems. Not only were murder rates up, there was widespread non-compliance with the best practices regarding body cameras, and there seemed to have been administrative mistakes, to say the least, possibly criminally so, that led to the killing of Breonna Taylor. But the trend is this. In the most liberal cities, where the communities are most critical of the police and civic leaders are most sympathetic to the community's complaints, it is the hardest for a police leader to hold a job there. But also, those are the police leaders who are chosen because they are most suited to those communities. So Atlanta and Seattle lose well-regarded leaders, and both of their mayors, women also, hate to see those female police chiefs go. It is, in fact, the crack-some-skulls-shock-and-awe style of policing that most cries out for reform, but depending on the city, those are the areas where police leadership is most entrenched. I know... And I've heard from residents of each of those cities who will tell me of the specific misdeeds of police departments regarding protesters or specific incidents. I'm not arguing. I'm not saying the police, of course, acted well in every case or police chiefs couldn't have done something different. But also, policing is hard. The right decision isn't always apparent. Interacting with anti-police protesters in a way that can constitute any shade of confrontation, will be widely criticized by those protesters, and maybe rightly so. My point is, though, that reform is necessary, but that the lever for reform is least accessible to the hands that need it most and most easily grasped sometimes when it's least called for. On the show today, next time you pay your federal taxes, won't it be fun to calculate how much went to the no Donald Trump isn't a rapist legal defense fund? But first, the Iranian hostage crisis lasted 444 days and involved 52 Americans, but really 225 million Americans. That was the population then. The failed rescue attempt authorized by President Jimmy Carter was a tragic but fascinating story within the overall crisis. Now, Barbara Koppel, famed documentarian, has set out to chronicle what led to the rescue attempt 
and the failure thereof. The name of the film is Desert One. Barbara Koppel joins me next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Barbara Koppel is one of America's great documentarians. When she makes a documentary about labor strikes, it usually wins an Academy Award. She's won two, but it's the breadth of her work that is just astounding. She's done pretty much straight ahead reality TV. Omarosa, know her? Barbara Koppel does. Her new film is a combination of politics, military, and what she does so well, human stories. It's called Desert One. It's about the botched rescue attempt of the Iranian hostage. Barbara, thanks for coming back on. Oh, well, thanks for having me on. I'm not exactly sure how you choose which projects to do, except the through line seems to be there are really interesting human stories there. Was the military aspect a main draw to tell this story? No, the, the main draw was the people, who they were, why they decided that they were going to go and, you know, save these 52 hostages that, you know, had been captured by the Iranian students and held at the American embassy and that they were volunteering to go on this mission to bring 52 hostages home and how selfless they were to be able to do that and how heroic they were. Yes. So going in, I had read a bit about it. I, I forgot this, but I read a large report in The Atlantic by uh, Mark Bowden, who did uh, Black Hawk Down. And my conception of it was that the mission was botched essentially because of the sands. The, the helicopters couldn't navigate through essentially a sandstorm. And there's some truth to that. That's not untrue, but that's hardly the story of it. What was going in? What was your... Um, either remembrance or understanding of this mission and what it meant and why it failed. It meant everything to these guys, of course, to bring home the 52 hostages. And that's why they volunteered to do it. And, you know, for me, it was a story that really needed to be told because it was a story of heroism and also a reminder of the horror of war and the roots of conflict between the U.S. and the Iranian governments. There were so many moving parts to this, and President Carter really didn't want to do a mission. He wanted to try to be diplomatic. He wanted to be a humanitarian. He didn't want there to be any deaths. He wanted to see all 52 hostages come home, but Khomeini, because he had had harbored the Shah of Iran, and but the Iranians wanted the Shah of Iran back to um, put on trial. Uh, he kept him in the United States and got him medical care for his cancer. Uh, Khomeini wouldn't have anything to do with uh, negotiating with Carter. The mission was a total secret mission. There was not even one photograph of it. The helicopters... There were eight to begin with, and they couldn't do it 
for less than six and they had less than six, three, one had a blade problem. Another had uh, from all the dust and everything, the habab that covered it, it got into all their equipment and couldn't go any further. So each helicopter, three of the helicopters had problems. It was sort of like Murphy's law and had to, you know, they couldn't do it. They had to abort the mission. So you must do a ton of research beforehand and you have some or a great idea of the story that you need to tell. And it's a complex story. But then when you do dozens of interviews or at least dozens that are on the screen, you must learn new information. So how do you incorporate that into the spine of the story that you had intended to tell going in? Well, I never... I never do that. I never intend to tell a story going in. What's really, and I do do research, but I just let it all out of my head once I'm actually filming the real people who experienced it and went through it because they're the ones that are really going to direct where the film is going, tell the most incredible stories. They're the eyewitnesses. They're the people who suffered and were, you know, held hostage for 444 days. And in all my films, it's just so much more interesting and real and alive to allow the people who really know what's happening tell the story. Was this a particular challenge since there were stories from so many vantage points and also so many, you're telling a little bit of the story of the Iranian revolution, a little bit of the story of the politics of America, a lot of the story of how a mission is done. And it just, and, and it's done in an hour and 45 minutes. It's not one of these eight part Netflix series that seems incredibly challenging. Actually, the most challenging part was um, trying to figure out how to portray the secret mission because there was no mm-hmm. footage for that. So we did it in animation and the animator is from Iran. He lives in Brooklyn now. And that was where mm-hmm. the most research came in because as the guys told us their stories, you know, we had to go and we had to go find what is the C-130 look like? you know, during that period, how would a helicopter smash into it if it was in a dust storm? Would it be on the right wing? Would it be on the left wing? It, so we had to mechanically all figure that out based on the stories of the men. And that was the most challenging, but it was fascinating and wonderful. And it brought it to life. And many of the men said that this is what happened. We've never seen this before. You just brought it all back. Oh, wow. Actually, it was Walter Mondale, who wasn't literally there, said this was the worst thing that ever happened in his life, but I'm sure for them was the worst thing that ever happened to them. And for the first time ever, they're seeing a rendition of it. Oh, my God. Yeah, they hadn't seen it. It's the 40th year anniversary, and none of them had seen it. It was all in their minds, and all the different parts that they played were in their minds. So. So it came together as a piece. You got Mondale and you got Carter. When did when were those interviews conducted? They were conducted, you know, about halfway through. Carter, I had to wait a really long time to be able to get him. I think I, I persisted for three months. They told me I had to call a guy named Phil Wise at the Carter Center. 
And so I would call him all the time and I'd always just get his answering machine and his answering machine would be, howdy, this is Phil Wise and I'm not in right now. And so I would decided to have a relationship with his um, answering machine, his <laughs> voicemail, and just keep calling every couple of days and say, okay, we filmed this, we did this, we have to have President Carter. And then finally, after three months, I got a call that said, howdy, this is Phil Wise. And I went, howdy, I'd know your voice anywhere. And he said, okay, Barbara, we've decided to let you come and film. And mm. so the day was um, February 14th, Valentine's Day. And he said, you only get 20 minutes. And I said, okay, perfect, fine. I'm just so happy to, to do it. And I brought the best chocolates for President Carter. And I had been in okay. South Sudan and I bought his wife um, a red heart made of crystals by the women there. Uh, oh. And the interview was, you know, really astounding. I mean, he said some extremely heartfelt material that, you know, every bit was used. I was actually only given 19 minutes and 47 seconds, but they were worth it. A couple of the other figures in the documentary uh, were hostage takers on the Iranian side. Yeah. Are they, are those individuals still in government or um, affiliated and loyal, I guess you would say, to the government of Iran? Yeah, I think all of them are from the Revolutionary Guard and all played a part, whether they were a student who took the hostages or a military person. There were quite a few. But I think the most poignant and wonderful for me was when the military landed in Tabas late in the evening, they were told that there was not going to be anybody on the roads and there was only one small road, but yet this bus appeared. And the bus was a family that every year, everybody in their family went on a road trip. And this road trip just happened to lead them into the military, you know, getting ready to go and attack the American embassy. And one of the people yeah. on the bus was an 11-year-old boy. And our crew in Iran, which was two women, found him in a small village. And he told his story. And he told his story as if it came from an 11-year-old mind, you know, how he was feeling and how scared he was and how he really wanted to live so that he could go and he could tell all his friends at school about what happened. And to me, that's the most personal, intimate interview because all of us would want to do the same. The people we would want to tell would be all our friends if we had this kind of adventure happen. Oh, yeah. What an amazing find. And just so my listeners understand, the the staging area, Desert One, the staging area was supposed to be desolate and isolated. Yes. And not only were no cars supposed to come by, one does, another does, and then a bus, a bus of 44 people yes. show up, yes. which is so, which was nothing they could have ever encountered. And I had, like I said, I'd read about this, but I never knew, and I don't know if it had been known, that this was all one family on a family vacation. Yeah. Uh, that might be new. That It was all just so amazing to find this person and to hear that perspective. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it was incredible. 
Do you think, is there any way to know, maybe some of the military experts you talked to opined about this, but if this mission were done with 2020 technology and methods, would it have a greater chance of succeeding? Uh, Not if it was planned the way it was, because there were so (laughs) many moving parts. And I think that had it happened, maybe many more people would have died. But I do think that if it were done and wasn't uh, successful, there'd be a greater chance that it would have been covered up in some way in 2020. Perhaps, uh, maybe not, because we have so much media and we know what's happening around the world and the Iranians would know that somebody, that people were there. It's just during that time, they didn't have that. They only could tell in the daytime if somebody was invading their land. Right, right. And the even at the point, the Iranians did make uh, the move of taking the bodies of the U.S. servicemen and desecrating them, essentially. Yeah, putting them on so display. Something like that. They put them on display. Yeah. Yes. I f- I'd forgotten that part. Uh, you know, I was I was eight or something right. when this happened. But still, if you're if you're at all cognizant of that period, so much of it is seared upon your mind. But it was just fascinating to go back with the documentary, wondering about and reminding yourself of what happened and wondering about how events like that would play today in today's media environment, in today's p- political environment. Right. I think that you have to go back and you have to remember that this was the beginning of um Ted Koppel and Nightline. And that's where they got all their intel and all their information. So they had to know which way the doors opened at the American embassy or who had rifles and, you know, everything they learned, they learned from Nightline, which was a really big thing during that period because, you know, it's say 18th day, 42nd day, 120th that, you know, it just went all the way through to, you know, 444 days of captivity for the hostages. Well, I can't recommend where, where so what's is uh, when theaters come back, the idea is this will get a theatrical release, but is there anything else to say about when people can see this? Yeah, it's opening in 95 different cities um, around the country uh, on August 21st. And then uh, so people should be able to see it, whether it's in a theater, whether it's in a drive-in or whether it's, you know, just um, media. Barbara Koppel, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Louis XIV said, L'état c'est moi. I am the state. Donald Trump says, Je suis le grand. Roughly, I am the great. But his politics and policies also say, I am the state. He wants to be the state. He'd really like to be the state. He says, it's not about insulting me. Oh, no, no, it's about insulting our troops. Uh huh. He'd like the state to pay some of his bills. He'd like the campaign to, but also the state. Because now he has authorized the Justice Department to take on the responsibility of representing him in court in the matter of Carol v. Trump. Carol is E. Jean Carroll, the former L columnist who alleges that Trump raped her in the mid-90s. Trump, in turn, called her a liar, so Carol sued for defamation. At this point, the courts usually say, quite sensibly, well, we can't have a sitting president be sued. Let us table this until after the presidency. But Trump has argued that this distraction will weigh upon him now. 
And also, the things he said, the nasty, probably inaccurate things he said about E. Jean Carroll, he said as president. And as president, he needs a defense. And there is a department for that, not of defense, but of justice. So he thinks he's justified in getting the U.S. Department of Justice to take over his case. U.S. attorneys, the public's attorneys, whose salaries are paid by U.S. citizens, are replacing Trump's private legal team under the theory that Trump's denial was an official act as president. Let us for a moment visit the actual words of the denial. It wasn't just, no, I didn't do it. Furthermore, I have a country to run and can't be brought into this mess. Oh, no. Before even issuing the denial, Trump embellished a bit, saying, quote, Number one, she's not my type. Number two, it never happened. It never happened, okay? Actually, the exact quote was, didn't even start there. It started with this. I say this with great respect. Number one, she's not my type. Wow. If that's great respect, what's disrespect? Probably sexually assaulting someone in a Barney's dressing room. So the U.S. public is now having to defend saying she's not my type as an official duty of a public servant. Let's be fair. Let's be as fair as we can. Let's say something like this happened to Hillary Clinton, that she beat Trump in 2016, and someone alleged something back in the 90s. They always do. They always were alleging things. And Hillary got sued when she called the accuser a liar. Would Democrats say, well, it's okay for Hillary Clinton to weaponize the Department of Defense to take over her legal work? I would think they wouldn't. You might think they would. But even if they did, you know what I would say? I would say, ooh, that's a bad precedent. Sure, Hillary seems not to have done this particular misdeed. But what if a truly horrible president got into office? What kind of precedent would that set? Hey, what if Donald Trump had beat Hillary? You know, he almost won, right? Remember that. What if he decided to use the Department of Justice under this theory that his denials were official? That would be terrible. And that would be an excellent argument. And I definitely would say it. But it would never come to that because Hillary Rodham Clinton wouldn't have an attorney general who would ever take the case. In fact, before our current situation, I would have doubted the Senate would ever confirm any AG who would consider going this route. But apparently, William Barr spends a long time in the mind space of what would I do if I were Trump's private lawyer? I mean, what would I do officially? I think what the president's lawyers would say, if this uh, were ever actually joined, is that the president's statements about flipping are quite clear and express and, and uniformly the same. That one argument, that's not actually a terrible argument. It's speculative. It's hard to prove, but it's legally interesting. But this, this what's going on now, using the AG's office to defend the president's characterization of an accuser as not rape-worthy. It's not just a bad argument. It's a bad actual thing that's actually happening. So Michael Cohen is now doing the tours, the book tours, to promote his book. Remember Michael Cohen? Remember what Michael Cohen's job was? He was Trump's fixer. Here, he reminds Rachel Maddow what that job entailed. I was acting at the direction of and for the benefit of Mr. Trump. And how I became this guy, I'm not the one who had the affair. He did I'm not the, I'm, I am the dummy who paid $130,000 to keep it quiet. So now William Barr has officially moved into that role. He is Donald Trump's fixer. He is literally, as Cohen said, acting at the direction and for the benefit of Donald Trump. The end of that sentence is supposed to be the American people, but now it is clearly Donald Trump. So is Barr the dummy or are we all? If we allow this president 
to continually pull the string. And that's it for today's show. Just was produced by Margaret Kelly. She produced it in spirit. Daniel Schrader produced it in the flesh. And Lori Galaretta hovers over all of us, nudging with a whisper or a wink. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She does not approve of Michael Cohen engaging in such callous language as dummy, perhaps sock puppet. The gist. If I wanted to watch a movie about hotshot pilots seeing their mission fall apart in the sands of a hostile environment, I would watch the volleyball scene in Top Gun. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>